Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Melano bailey I am the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we are very excited to share with you our guest this week is Dr. Samuel Chawner, who is a research fellow from Cardiff, Cardiff University's Center for Human Developmental Science. His research integrates genetics and psychology to provide new insights into child development and autism. So thank you so much for being here with us, uh, Dr. Chana. We're very excited to have you as a guest. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, Could you begin with telling us and our listeners, how did you become interested in researching genetics and child development? Um. I think it started when I was an undergraduate and there was um, a module on genetics and psychology and I just became fascinated on sort of the nature-nurture aspect of human behaviour and then that led me to study psychology and genetics as a PhD. Um, yeah, and then I've been working in it since. <laughs> Wonderful. That's, uh, it sounds like you certainly had an interest as you began studying it. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your recent publication on the genetics first, first approach to dissecting uh, the genetics behind autism? Yeah, so um, um, within autism, there's this sort of saying that if you've met one person with autism, you've just met one person with autism. And that Um, individuals with autism can vary a lot from each other in terms of verbal skills and in terms of long-term outcomes in terms of independence and independent living and there's a lot of research interest into why there's such large differences in the outcomes of autism and whether we can predict this and one area people have been looking at this is genetic so whether there's different genetic subtypes of autism and um, um there's an we wanted to look at this and there's an opportunity because there's um there were four genetic conditions that have been linked to autism and we were able to identify individuals with these um autism related genetic conditions through clinics and do assessments and um we were testing the hypothesis whether different genetic conditions led to different types of autism And in fact, what we found is actually a bit more nuanced and complex. We found there were differences, but that there was a lot of overlap, um, suggesting that actually our understanding of autism is probably more complex than we first thought. Um, But also it highlighted that individuals with these genetic conditions um, who didn't meet criteria for an autism diagnosis experienced a lot of symptoms on the spectrum and their clinical needs weren't being looked at and it raised the question to us whether actually an autism diagnosis can miss a lot of people who still need clinical need. That's interesting so if I hear you right there's individuals that don't meet necessarily the DSM criteria mm. but they're not there uh, as far as symptoms. Are you seeing genetic so if you see them from the symptoms perspective, not meeting criteria, are the similarities from a genetic perspective that you that you saw in your research that maybe would be a little bit more uh, inclusive? 
Um, I guess what's difficult is in most autism research, you have to have a diagnosis to be part of the study. So it's there's not that many studies out there. There's, there are population-based studies that show there is a spectrum of autism traits and there are individuals who may have just say communication difficulties, but not repetitive behaviors. But in terms of kind of identifying clinical patients, we were only able to do this because we were starting from a genetic um, point. And then we saw there's this quite large subgroup who didn't, uh, who say had communication difficulties, but didn't have um, repetitive behaviors. So yeah, I think, it's an area that needs to be focused more wi more widely in psychiatry. Yes, Kevin may, brings up a good point uh, when he talks about behavioral health practitioners who are working with clients with autism. And mm. frequently these mental health providers are not using genetic testing to aid in their diagnosis of autism with clients. Do you foresee in the future that might be something that could be changing? Yeah, so like within the UK, we have NICE guidelines and um, one of the considerations following an autism diagnosis is um, referral for genetic testing. Currently, it tends to only happen if there's um, health comorbidities. So um, if the individual has um, kind of congenital abnormalities from birth or if there's um, comorbidities in terms of intellectual disability, um, and the idea is that the genetic diagnosis may link up these different health domains, whereas previously professionals have just been looking um, at things individually, such as autism or the physical health. It could start connecting up these areas. You know, that's interesting. You know, one of the things that comes up, uh, I think when you look at the UK versus the US, our health mm. system here is very compartmentalized. There's no uh, connection. Mm. So collecting data is a little bit more uh, difficult. Uh, but my understanding, and if I'm correct, let me know, is, is the UK is typically more of a national health system and everything is kind of interconnected, particularly like electronic health, yeah, electronic health records uh, and data. So can you speak to that and how is that helpful uh, and, uh, you know, maybe educate us a little bit here in the US about maybe, you know, how we could benefit by having greater synergies in our health systems here? Yeah, so within the UK, we have a medical genetic clinic network. Um, and there's, so there's a medical genetic clinic in each region of the UK. Um, and within them, they have lists of patients who can be recontacted to take part in research. Um, and so we did this as um, part of this work um, to identify individuals with these autism linked conditions, whereas you wouldn't be able to do that in the US and also another important fact is that the genetic testing is um, is uh, is at no cost to the patient um, so it's yeah it means there's greater accessibility there are still some issues in the UK in that a lot of the records are still on paper lists or they're not all uh, connected electronically but work's being done to upgrade this. I think the countries that are really leading this work are the Scandinavian countries. So um, in Denmark, um, you can access the population's health records and it can be linked to um, DNA blood spots available at birth. And so there's really interesting work coming out of, um, out of those countries. 
It sounds like the UK is really doing an excellent job at breaking down barriers. And uh, it, sound, it does sound like there's a, a lot that mm -hmm. the UK could, could learn from, that the US, excuse me, could learn from that. So that's very interesting. Yeah, because we combine data from the US and the UK, and there's some indication that um, the families who identified with genetic conditions in the US were perhaps from higher socioeconomic backgrounds uh, due to kind of access to um, insurance and um, so on. Um, so, um, yeah, there are studies happening in the US, but it tends to be more through patients identified through sort of um, social media or through patient advocacy groups. There isn't this kind of centralized um, sort of healthcare system approach. Any ethical issues come up with regard to testing? You know, uh, you know, at birth with Scandinavia, at least you could go back and pull it. You know, uh, are the, what does that look like there in Europe and Scandinavia with regard to access? Who has access? Who do you need to get permission from the clients? What does that look like from the system? Um, so, yeah, it's it's really interesting. There's been you could do a whole kind of um, show on the ethics of this. Um, so I think in Denmark you've got to be a registered researcher, and I think um, the data their data can't leave Denmark. So if someone wants to analyse the data, they've got to actually physically go to the national registries and do the analysis there. Um, and and. And any um, analyses have to be approved by kind of a central ethics committee. Um, I believe that you can opt out of the system if you're a Danish citizen, but, um, and I think, yeah, they found that uh, right. So they don't do kind of an opt-in procedure. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, it, it does raise up lots of ethical questions and- It is complicated. Hmm. Yeah. And, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there's kind of questions about what if we identify new genetic risks in the future? Um, at the moment in their system, they wouldn't be able to go back to those individuals and it's whether that's ethical or, or not and how should research be interfering with clinical care and um, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like its own doctoral work would be necessary for that to parse yeah. that out. You know, one of the things that's front and center here uh, globally is COVID. And I'm reading a lot about these comorbidities of neurologic and behavioral health problems coming out of that. So I'm wondering if you can speak to any of that. I know it's really early on. This is not out that long and mm. specifically either autism or your work in genetics. Any any correlations you guys hearing about even just whispers at this point? Um, I mean, I'm just hearing that individuals um, with autism um, or individuals with intellectual disability um, are a potential greater risk of COVID. And there's been talks, say, in the UK, whether carers should be prioritised um, for vaccination um, when they're working within, you know, individuals with intellectual disability. Um, and that's... Um, with individuals with rare genetic conditions, a lot of them are shielding currently in the UK and they're receiving even less kind of health support than mm. they were before COVID because a lot of things like speech therapy or the services they were accessing um, have just basically shut down um, during COVID. Um, what are you seeing about uh, any additional data or information, at least specific to the UK, with regard to uh, increased behavioral health 
problems uh, with those that never had them before, those that have them in the severity level? And how is it being addressed? I know it's, it's here in the US, it's become a real problem. We're seeing a huge demand and trying to struggle there. What has been the UK's experience? So I think there have been surveys showing that um, anxiety and um, anxiety and mood problems have increased in children and young people um, over COVID. And I think the statistic now is that over one in five young people are experiencing um, difficulties. Um, and there's a big debate in the UK about um, whether the risk of opening schools um, in terms of COVID versus the risk that it has on children's mental health and vulnerable children. And uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think we're at the right answer yet, but it's um, certainly a debate that needs to be continued. Yeah. Is the UK, is the UK, do they, do they have different schools open in different parts of the countries or is it co collectively, has there been one decision made on during COVID if the schools are open or closed? Could you share with us a little bit about that? Um, so it's been, it's devolved within each of the nations of the UK. So there's been a lot of debates because say in Scotland, they've closed the schools, but perhaps not in Wales and vice versa. Um, at the moment, there's been... Um, all schools have been um, shut down um, within England and um, they probably won't open again until March. Um, but yeah, within a nation, there's kind of consistency. Sure. Yeah. That, that's, that's pretty much how it is here in the U.S. too. Um, actually, it's, you know, dependent on the surge of the virus in the area or the, uh, the government of the state officials, how they, how they, how conservatively or not conservatively they've been handling the school closures. So that's very interesting. And to circle back to your point regarding the services and the decline mm. in services when schools are closed, can you speak to a little bit about how socioeconomic status in the UK either does or doesn't uh, play into the role of uh, clients who have autism and their access to services? So I think, I mean, I think there is some evidence that socioeconomic status can um, make it difficult to access services and I know within the medical genetic services, there's sometimes um, it's, I f yeah, because um, services are stretched, sometimes it's the parents who fight the most who get access to the services. And some families aren't in, in that position or have the resources to kind of, you know, keep on having that fight. A lot of the parents of children with rare genetic conditions, I meet um it's sometimes a full-time job for the mum just you know accessing the support they need for their child and often they're only able to do that if um uh, there's um you know kind of uh, financial resources within the family can you speak to a little bit more uh, uh your research was so fascinating to me mm. uh, speak more to kind of uh how genetics is playing a role specifically in uh, in the treatment end of it. So uh, we have a lot, most of the viewers of our podcast are gonna be those end uh, treatment clinicians who are actually providing the psychotherapy. So where do you see currently the status with, with autism, obviously, because that research was mm. fascinating. And then beyond autism, what you're seeing, and then and then any any other information or advice you have for psychotherapists uh, globally about, you know, really how should we be approaching this from that perspective? 
So I think there's a hope that in the future we'll move towards a personalised medicine approach whereby we're not just applying the same therapy to everyone with, say, a diagnosis with autism. Actually, we're looking at their individual um, sort of biological and sort of environmental factors. And so it could be um, that in the future we find that certain genetic um, groups um, uh, therapies work better uh, than in other groups and there's been some evidence that the genetic conditions that we um, looked at in this study uh, for instance social skills training doesn't work as well because often there's comorbidities with intellectual disability in the genetic conditions we look at so and there's been other um, studies in the genetics of anxiety finding that um, a person's response to cognitive behavioural therapy is to some extent influenced by their genetics. Um, it's at the early stages and can't yet be translated to the clinic but we could see this in the future where you know a blood test is taken and then a thorough kind of developmental history of life experiences and so on and this all feeds into a kind of a risk calculator that indicates what therapies um, may work with the individual. Yeah I, th I think uh, your research what do you from your research so what what do you think are the next steps uh, with regard to uh, what you if what would you like to do if you had the you had the keys to drive the car wherever you would like where would you go with it? So I think there's something we just looked at four genetic conditions but there's due to genetic technologies new genetic conditions are being identified um, every year so it'd be to expand this work and look more widely across um, autism and genetic conditions um, but also going back to what we discussed before is um, about looking at in these kind of population data sets at the moment we're only um, seeing individuals who've been diagnosed with these genetic conditions there may be many individuals in the population who have these genetic factors and don't know it and it'd be really interesting to know how the genetics affects their day-to-day -day life it's fascinating mm. uh, such, such exciting work that you guys are doing over there yeah. uh, absolutely yeah. could you tell our listeners where they can learn more about the work of your lab yeah so on the web page uh, um, links to the different work um, that I've done but also I'm part of the Genes to Mental Health Consortium and they have a web page that links to kind of the new projects we're doing and um, the publications coming out of that so I can send that afterwards. Wonderful we will absolutely share that with our listeners and post that link so that they can uh, read up on it and find out more information um, what you're doing is truly fascinating. I think a lot of our listeners will really be interested uh, as they work with clients uh, with autism. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, and I hope as you get new developments, reach out to us, uh, although we'll be watching, but keep, reach out to us when you think you, you'd like to come on and talk more about some of the things that you're doing. We'd love to have you. Yeah, no, it's been great. And there's lots more to discuss. <laughs> Definitely wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for this uh, tuning in for this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. We will see you next week and stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast. Check out our website at cbicenterforeducation.com for more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events.